Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity. It's from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, but LSB allows you to expand it to 17, and so I'm going to read all the way to verse 17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, so context. What are we looking at? Well, this is almost the very beginning of of Jesus' ministry, and it's I think it's the kind of transition into the hostility of the Pharisees as well. So you have you have John the Baptist right at the beginning of John, which is really kind of the Old Testament and you know the calling of the disciples. Then you have Cana, right, and that's the eschatological feast and the foreshowing of the sacrament of the altar. And you know everybody's pretty nice, mm-hmm. and then. This, right, that Nicodemus is from the Pharisees, one of the rulers of the Pharisees, and, you know, there's some hostility there, and then, you know, that's only going to kind of expand, not with mm-hmm. Nicodemus, but but with his brothers, right? So that's the context. It's, so I, I think there is a kind of setup of really chapter one, Old Testament, you know, establishing authority and the call Chapter two, the eschatological reality and, and the joy that's given with the wine and the foreshowing of the, of the spirit, or I mean of the uh, sacrament. 
And then chapter three being this Holy Spirit Trinitarian chapter that kind of really culminates uh, in some ways with the teaching on baptism and the allegory from the serpent that becomes this, you know, uh, great verse 16. Yeah. So is there any importance to the fact, uh, besides that it happened this way, <laughs> that Nicodemus came by night? Does this well, yeah. demonstrate, uh, at least where he's at, where Nicodemus is at in his thinking or, or believing? Right. I mean, that's the, that's, it's the beginning of the hostility. I mean, mm. right. Nobody's mad at Jesus at Cana, but but now, you know, Nicodemus can't come openly. He has to come secretly. And he himself is a little obnoxious, right? There's, <laughs> so? It's not, well, I mean, this is a ridiculous question. How can a man be born when he's old? I mean, Nicodemus knows what Jesus is talking about. So he's, um, you know, uh, he's being obtuse here. He recognizes yeah. that the word anothen can both mean from above and um, again, and yet he's choosing to think about it in earthly terms, not right. in heavenly terms. Is that why Jesus says, "Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do, you don't understand those things?" Yeah. In other words, that's exactly why he he should already know that the Old Testament is filled with the image of God as father, you know, beginning with Exodus and moving forward, especially kind of in the Psalms, you get this impression that God is father. And because he's a teacher of Israel, he should know that we receive this status from above, not by doing something again. Right. He, he just acts as though he doesn't understand anything about <laughs> spiritual realities, right? Oh, you mean I'm going to climb back into my mother's belly through her and come back out again? I mean, he's just being a – yeah. So so is, that, so is yeah. that right for us to assume that he's being obtuse instead of he just doesn't understand? No, he he is being obtuse. He's, there's okay. no way he doesn't understand this. I mean, it's, this is impossible for him to not understand this. I mean, yeah. I've no sympathy for Nicodemus here. I mean, he does convert, right? Again, yes. once again, putting the worst construction, but come on. <laughs> I, I mean, and th that's a rhetoric. Are you the teacher of Israel? That's a damning statement. I mean, right. Again, as you said, the teachers of Israel, you're the one, you've spent your life studying the Bible. How do you not know the most basic fundamental reality that there has to be a spiritual change in a man? And to conceive of that as new birth isn't a, a novel idea. Yeah. Right. So, so, so building on that in verse 11, Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Is the we and the hour there in reference to the union of the triune God, or is that in reference to the teachers of Israel? No, it's a triune God because the well teachers. I thought you were going to say the apostles, but they're not. The apostles aren't witnessing anything yet. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's the triune God. I don't think it's. I mean, unless you mean by the prophetic witness the work of the Spirit. I mean, you could extend it that way. But this is where I think he's Jesus kind of ups the game. It's mm -hmm. like so. 
right? Nicodemus says, how can he be born when he's old? And then, you know, Jesus rebukes him. Look, right? Unless one's born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And then, you know, when Nicodemus maybe asks a more honest question, how can this be? Then he gets this, are you the teacher of Israel? And then Jesus is, then he really, this language of, of we know and testify what we have seen, that's where Jesus is being obnoxious, I think. Like, because he is, he is now claiming to be one with the Father and to speak for the Father yeah. and the, right by the Spirit directly in a way that, you know, if he wasn't who he is, would be blasphemous. Yeah. And right. you mean like obnoxious tell- in the same way that the world thinks we're obnoxious and we yeah. say you can't live together before you're married or well, things like that. No, I think it's more obnoxious than that. I think he's I think he's rubbing Nicodemus's nose in it a little bit. Okay. I think he's up in the upping the uh the stakes. Um he knows that this is offensive language and he's not trying to be winsome or gentle, you know. Okay. And and he's, I mean, because the claim is right. You're, you're, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen because we are the Holy Trinity, and you are talking out of your, right? You don't Rear know end. what you're saying, <laughs> and you're, and and so I think it's kind of a, it's a harsh statement. It seems to me it's it's a bold statement, you know, a boasting kind of, um, in face of, in in response to Nicodemus's obstinance. Yeah. And again, right. So if it, if he wasn't actually the son of God, it would be blasphemy. This is like I was, I tr- I pulled this in the sermon from a couple of weeks ago for Regate. It's like when they weren't asking in Jesus' name, they weren't asking the Father anything in Jesus' name. That's because they thought he was a teacher, right? I mean, it would be absolutely wrong for my members to ask God for things in my name. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they're not tempted to do that, of course, thank God. But right, that that would be wrong. And but that's how they were treating Jesus, as though he was just a pastor, just a teacher, just a rabbi. Mm. And that's a problem. And that's the problem here. So Nicodemus comes, right? And he makes this, I mean, it's so outrageous. So he calls him rabbi, but I think it's kind of faint praise. Um, even if it wasn't at night, you know, meeting in secret so that nobody will see. It's it's not enough to say that Jesus is a teacher come from God. You have to say that Jesus is God. Okay. So he starts off with the wrong assumptions right off the bat. Yeah. I think that is symbolized by him coming, I mean, it, or personified in a sense by him coming at night, but also just right, rabbi, and then, oh, you're a teacher come from God. We, there's always room for more of those. <laughs> right. This is like the <laughs> more Romans. teachers, the better. The yeah. Romans being happy to add just one more God to their pantheon. Right. right. What, what, as long as you're not God, we can get along fine, you know? So, and, but then, and, but then they, I mean, it's just so outrageous, right? Cause he does, right. No one can do these signs that you do. So, and by the way, what signs have been done? The turning water into wine. I mean, that's the only one recorded. So, you know, uh, it's pretty, that's a pretty outrageous sign um, which doesn't have a correspondence directly in the Old Testament. I mean, you have you have multiplication of food miracles, but you don't have you don't have a, you don't have any wine miracles, and you certainly don't have water. Anyway, so so you have that, yeah. So when he says we, I think it's the Trinity, and I think he's rebuking the earlier thing that he's a teacher from God. He's like, no, I'm God. I speak for the Father because I'm equal to the Father. 
So I mean, that's the next sentence. No one has ascended into heaven except me. <laughs> right? I mean, it's the same, it's the same idea. So what are the uh, so, so what are the earthly things in verse 12 that he that Jesus has spoken to Nicodemus that he doesn't believe? Uh the uh the earthly thing is baptism. All right, you don't say more. In, I, I say the earthly thing is baptism, right? You, you what do you mean you don't believe in baptism? Baptism you can see, right? And uh and and you can hear. And you're you're claiming that it's this is like the Naaman thing. It's too mundane, it's too boring, it must just be a ceremony. I need something fancier. I think you, you know, look, uh Jesus is the earthly thing in his body, baptism is the earthly thing. Even the in a sense, being born from above is an earthly thing. Uh these this as opposed to the hidden will of God, right? Or the mystery of the Holy Trinity himself or even the communication of attributes, right? These are, these are the, the simple things of the faith for human beings that are given to human beings that human beings are capable of comprehending in the sense that they can believe them and confess them. Mm. So this is like unto what the book of Hebrews talks about. Yeah, you know, I'd like to get on to deeper things, but <laughs> you can't handle it. Or I think it's also in Second Peter maybe where he talks that way. Similar, similar kind of sentiment. I think so, and I, I think you get this in the epistle from uh, Romans eleven. You know you, that this uh, the mysteries of the of of the kingdom that are too deep. Um, you know that's a that's a truism, but that isn't an excuse to deny what we can know, right? So there's this kind of longing for things that are more. I don't. It, maybe this isn't a good parallel, but I often think about like the sort of uh, Pentecostals that are obsessed with trying to figure out, you know, the book of Revelation. Mm. And the book of Revelation is exciting and interesting because it, you know, it reads like a comic book almost, if you read it in a kind of literal way. And then they ignore Christology and even the Christology in Revelation itself for the sort of, right? It's like they're bored with Jesus (laughs) and they need something more, you know, exciting or interesting or deeper or profound. And I think there's a, there is a temptation to that in all of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, what preacher hasn't, hasn't come at this text and said, how many times can I preach on John 3.16, right? Yeah. There's no more to say, you know. And, but it is a way of also hiding from the, <clears throat> hiding from the actual duties, right? Yeah. So in our past conversations, we have talked about how properly to translate the the perfect tense in Greek. In other words, that it's not just something that is done in the past and that's all, that it has ongoing importance and as we move forward in time. Is there a sense in which here Nicodemus uh, looks at the Exodus, uh, looks at what's given at Mount Sinai, looks at the bronze serpent and sees them as just historical facts and not as things that will continue on in the future and perhaps be uh, redone in a different way, in a more complete way, to completely put the head of the serpent under Jesus's feet. Is, is that part of this that he's like how can you how can you be so earthly minded that you don't see that 
that there is a larger plan besides the fact that these past kindest kindnesses and mercies and of God have taken place, but that there's more along those same lines that will be accomplished. I mean, I think that could be part of it. I guess, I guess I was, I'm thinking more the problem is if I have told you of earthly things and you do, you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? I think it's more that he's not going to tell him of heavenly things. That mm. Jesus isn't telling us about heavenly things. He is telling us about earthly things. And so in that sense, right, it's that it's not that we got to be looking for some deep spiritual meaning, you know, it's it is in it, it's one thing. So I mean in the sense of uh not recognizing the reality of God's presence in the temple as a continuation of his presence in the tabernacle and and then recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of these, he's actually denying earthly things. Mm. So this is all because this is all this is where it's actually given and where where our attention is to be. And his desire for heavenly things, I think, is inappropriate. It's he doesn't really want. I mean, he just he wants to avoid the reality. So let me see if I got this right. So he is wanting to escape the reality and just focus on the heavenly things. And Jesus is saying, look, if you don't understand these earthly things, how are you going to get the heavenly things? Right. If you don't see that God works in this way, how are you ever going to grasp the, the, the stuff beyond what you can well, see and even- touch and feel and taste? Make it worse, though. It's wor- it's worse than that. It's not just how are you ever going to. It's like, look, you're asking for things you don't even know what you're asking. So stupid. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what you're asking because you don't even know. You, you you pay attention to what I told you. So it's like a little bit maybe like in our day when we get caught up and we want to we want to spend all our time arguing about the crux theologram. Mm. Right. So this is our, this is our big concern. And we're, you know, people, I mean, I, I mean, my members want to talk about this all the time. And I mean, legitimately in some sense, but my line to them has become, uh, okay, I'm going to set a timer. <laughs> we can talk about this for three minutes and then we're done. You know, I mean, because the, the problem is this isn't appropriate for us to talk about in some sense, mm-hmm. because we're, we're trying to delve into the hidden will of God. And anytime you try to do, delve into the hidden will of God, you make yourself God's judge because you're, you're going to discern what God can and couldn't do or should or shouldn't do or what God is like um, in this thing in which he has not revealed himself to us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can say we, can say, we need to say some things. I, I don't mean we can't address it at all, right? But we, we need to hold this balance of, you know, that all men have, have been reconciled to the Father in the death of the Son and declared righteous, and yet not all men are saved. And those who aren't saved, it's because of unbelief and their own fault of rejection. But God didn't choose them. At the same time, those who are saved were chosen, and it's because of God's grace and mercy. And now there's all sorts of questions about how that can, how that's a consistent reality. Mm-hmm. And we just say, okay, time's up. We can't talk about that anymore because it's not our job to, to make this clean or to make these reconcile. And this hasn't been revealed to us. We know what we know and we submit in faith because we're not God's judge. Yeah. And there's a kind of desire in us, a kind of, I think a, a kind of will to be Lord that, thinks it can demand answers or that 
right? And so then we want to, we won't move off that. And we're desiring to know heavenly things that have not been given to us and maybe aren't appropriate for us, rather than focusing and confessing and meditating upon what we do know. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. That's a first. So this is, this is a, as, as you already sort of said, this is a rejection of the possibility of incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. He's just being a jerk, Nicodemus. I mean, I don't know what he's doing. He, he's, he's curious. It, I mean, he's, he's, he's one step better, but not far away from Herod in his <laughs> attitude. But he is converted. I mean, God be praised, right? But, uh, and it is left open-ended. I do, I do love that when, they, when the evangelists do that, right? There's no response from Nicodemus. It just ends. Um, and so, I mean, I, I really do think that the kind of literary point is we're all Nicodemus, and we've all treated God this way, and we've all acted like this. And, you know, there's a sternness in this, but there's also, there's also, of course, great compassion in this. I mean, Jesus is revealing the heart of his Father in these words and is reaching out to Nicodemus. And we do know, you know, speaking in a kind of human sense, it is successful, right? Mm-hmm. Because Nicodemus does show up at the grave. So... And then, okay. by the way, you know, it's Nicodemus um, and Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, that takes St. Mary and the Holy Grail to the Isle of Man after, after <laughs> a Pentecost. So. so, you know, I have a special place in my heart for my ancestor, Nicodemus. Yeah. Is that where you <laughs> I love played those stories? Is that where you played darts? That's where my, uh, my, my father's mother was born. So yeah, oh, okay. we visited there last summer. Yeah. So I love I love how like every Christian culture in the world claims this kind of it it's always it's always gotta be I mean, whoever whatever the other characters are, it's always Mary and the Holy Grail, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is always our country was founded and you know, so fun. Anyway. Uh, he does convert, so God be praised for that. So let's talk about verse 14, because I think that's another great, hilarious moment, uh, of, and maybe the greatest allegory in the New Testament. And who would have seen it coming, right? I, I don't know. It, it seems plain to me. Does it? That he well, said yeah, it. I mean, well, yeah, but he, I mean, we're, of course, standing on the other side. I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine, if it wasn't for this passage— and you tried to say this. I mean, if it wasn't for John, I th- anyway, so for Jesus to tie his crucifixion and his glorification to the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness is, is amazing. And that is the context, by the way. There are some things we can say about John 3.16 that the people do not know, right? Um, it is a great verse. We, we were talking a little bit before the Things started. It was not that. Of, it wasn't a, a, a real important verse to Martin Luther, and I it, it had gained prominence in Christ, Western Christ, or in West, in Christianity, certainly in America. You know, in the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's funny that it wasn't so prominent. I and I mean, I love it. I think it's a great verse. I think it's it's a key verse to me. Um, but anyway, the context does matter. Um, you know, we, we memorize it as for God so loved the world, but that word for is of course a conjunction that is tying it back to the thing before. And the thing before is the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
so that, you know, whoever believes in him, the one lifted up, the son of man will not perish, but have eternal life. So because this, and then the other thing that, so, so to tie it to the history of Israel and also to, to recognize the violence and the, um, in some sense, the fact that the cross itself is a kind of abomination. Um, I, in, so in Psalm 22, of course, right, where Jesus says he's a worm and no man, there is, there is an etymological and a cultural connection between worms, snakes, and dragons. And when Jesus, so then, you know, you have these fiery serpents that are killing the people because of their unbelief and then coming and then they repent. And then the effigy of the, of the thing that's killing them is, you know, put to death on this, on this cross. And they look at the, they look at their enemy, the fiery serpent being destroyed and believing that God destroys this and that God is ruling. Right. And, and, and that saves them. And, you know, oh, and by the way, that's Jesus. Uh, the way that God destroys the serpent is by himself, who knew no sin becoming sin, being forsaken by his father, in some sense, taking on not not just the blame that belongs to Adam and Eve then, hmm. but the right. blame that belongs to the devil, right? What, what, Who is or what is the source of sin in the world? It's not Adam and Eve. The source of sin is the devil. And Jesus takes the blame, in a sense, for the devil, and is crucified as though he is the devil, and as though he, I mean, it's incredible. And uh, so you get that from Psalm 22, and you get that from this, and that's what we're to look upon and love, right? That's what we're supposed to look upon and believe, that this is the means by which God has saved the world, and in fact, this is the means of his love. So that's the other thing it's hard for me not to talk about with this passage, but that word, um, where, where am I? Oh, and uh, yeah. So, so, right, is this word in Greek that means thus. So it's it's like, say it isn't so. We usually hear the word so, and most of our people will hear it this way, as a emphasis or magnifier. And I've, I've heard Lutheran preachers do this. I mean, it's, it's not false doctrine, but it's bad exegesis that, you know, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. So that this is a passage about the extravagance or the depth of God's love but it's right. not, right? It's the process of God's love, the way yeah. that he loved the world. It, it, that's how we would translate it, right? Because uh, uh, God right? God loved the world in this way, he crucified the son. So it yep. is a great passage. It's even yeah. better, actually, when you know what it means. <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> imagine that. that, that that's... God's word's actually better than, yeah. But. So thinking that this comes on Trinity Sunday, why this passage on Trinity Sunday? I think it's the verse 11 that you brought up earlier. Why That's why Trinity Sunday. And the baptism stuff. The talk of the Spirit, right? The naming mm. of the Spirit, the naming of, of baptism, and then the Jesus speaking as we. I think that's why it falls in Trinity Sunday, probably. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as you said, as you introduced this, the historic lectionary wants to end at verse 15. Yeah. Which I don't, I don't want to do that. And I, I don't think it's, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm against it. Um, I mean, even if John 3.16 wasn't as prominent of a verse at the time in, until recently, it is a prominent verse now. And the paragraph doesn't end until 17, I think, logically. So you ought to just go on. I mean, this is a passage that's that I think is worth reading every year on a Sunday, 
you know, mm. to our people. Yeah. And then it does give them a chance too to, I mean, there is some worth in catechizing because, you know, the Baptists use this passage out of context so much that it has nothing to do with baptism. It really has almost nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. And so, I mean, it, it's good to actually teach our people why they should love this passage and mm-hmm. it's useful, you know? Yeah. So do you then emphasize that the external works of God are united, that you have the Father mm. sending the Son and the Spirit calling them to faith, and that is that is the, the Trinitarian aspect here? Yeah, I mean, you can go, What I, I mean, of course, I, w- I would take the word God in verse 16 to be the Father, right? The Father loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son. I mean, I think that's fair. We're talking about Son and Father. But then the Spirit, I would say, is in the, that whoever believes in him. And, you know, we have the belief uh, earlier there that, right, unless one is born of the water and Spirit, he cannot see, one, one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So, there's the Trinitarian connection in in verse sixteen, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, you can certainly take it further than that. You can also write this is the way that I mean that's what's so great about fourteen, and uh, and 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 fifteen, right? That it's the Father, right? The Father lifts up the Son. The Father crucifies the Son, and in crucifying the Son again the son becomes the effigy of Satan himself who is destroyed by the father's love and the son's obedience in our place. So that when we look on him and we believe this, we believe that this is actually the satisfaction of God's law in our place and the declaration of our righteousness, we actually receive it and we mm-hmm. don't perish. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so is that how you've typically preached on Trinity Sunday? I mean... It is, and I and the problem is I've preached it so much I don't want to do it. And I mean I've just I've just I've just exegeted and exegeted and exegeted this passage over the years. They're probably pretty tired. I mean that's it's they know exactly what I'm going to say at this point. Yeah. So I don't I don't think I'm going to this year. I'm going to try I, to resist. I have done um, the external works of God are united. So like in creation, and then elsewhere you you have all three persons of the Trinity coming up and then bam here. This is why the Trinity is still important because his what? <laughs> this is why the Trinity is still important. It just seems to be like a very ridiculous statement. Well, it is, but it's not false. I mean, it just, I mean, just, that just seems like this is why oxygen is still important. You know? Yes. It just my, seems like such, <laughs> I should say what, why, why celebrating the feast of Trinity or <laughs> oh there you go gosh <laughs> I give up <laughs> maybe maybe I'm just not with it today my my point is that how often is it the case that people kind of like when we get to difficult things like the Trinity they're just like oh you know what does it matter I believe in Jesus or what does it matter and I would like to say it matters. And yeah. you should you should take the time to try as much as is within you to wrap your head around it. Yes. Or explore I, I think it. We, Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have uh have often commented that it's bizarre 
that our forefathers in the faith struggled so much with the doctrine of the Trinity and with the the two natures of Christ and the communication of attributes, right? That these were, that's why the creeds are written, or to defend mm-hmm. these things in a precise manner. And our people, myself included, right, we just accept these things with no struggle. Yeah. Like I have never had, I mean, I've never had a member come to me with a question about the Holy Trinity or the two natures of Christ. Like, Pastor, how can this be that there's one God and three persons? That doesn't add up. Nobody's ever said that to me. And nobody's mm-hmm. ever said to me, nobody's ever denied the divinity of Jesus to me. Oh, I don't know if Jesus could really be God. I think he just seems like God. I, the, the the doctrinal formulations are kind of taken for granted is what I fear, right? Mm. That, that these things that were so hard for, right? Why, why is it that these are so easy for us? Now, in some ways, maybe it's because they've done the work for us. And, you know, so we're the heirs of that and we benefit from that. And that's good. I mean, I don't want to dismiss that. But at the same time, I wonder if it's that we're a little bit too lazy. And so we're afraid to look into it and to struggle with it. Yeah. Or is it is it laziness or is it that um, they've just been told this is beyond comprehension and so don't even try? Yeah. I mean, there is that. I mean, that's one of the things I have written down that, right. So you could have a little possible sermon outline. So you could preach on Nicodemus's arrogance, I thought, and you could go through this whole thing of the wind blowing and not knowing. And then the Romans 11, that there is this reality, right? That what Nicodemus wants with heavenly knowledge is inappropriate and isn't given to him. But then the preaching of the law from that, you could have, you know, okay, a, don't be arrogant, right? Don't don't seek these things, but you know, look at what's in front of you and what God has promised and what God has told you. And then B, right, don't use this mystery to be lazy and to not do the work, right? That or to deny the perspicuity of scripture. So that there is a kind of tendency amongst some people, like for example, with the uh, uh, six-day creation, they'll they want to believe in evolution. So they'll just say, well, creation is a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, it's a mystical reality. It's a mystery. You know, we, we don't know what that means. No. Yes, we do know what that means, right? We do know what the word day means. Oh, but there was no sun on the first day and that defines a day. So you can't, yeah. But when Moses wrote it, there was right. The word, the word day had a very specific meaning and still, so anyway, there's just all this kind of stuff that, that I think sometimes, exactly what you were saying. So there, there is a preaching of the law, I think it's appropriate, that would say, um, you know, that we're, we're not given to know heavenly things, but we're not given to dismiss the things that we are to know or the perspicuity of scripture because, because of the hidden will of God. Just because yeah. there's a hidden will of God doesn't mean there isn't a revealed will of God. And so anyway, I think that's a legitimate preaching of the law for our age and a peculiar mm-hmm. temptation I've even heard this recently um, uh, with with matters of uh, 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 just it was on, I don't even want to say this out loud, but I will anyway. They I, I was reading because somebody linked his own stuff on our blog on the Godestine's blog. He's a Methodist or something. He's got some some stuff on sexual addiction and pornography, and mm. it's pretty good. What I read of it, uh, just the blog, I didn't buy the books, but he's 
he's not quite as strict as we would be. And one of the places that shocked me um, was he's soft on masturbation. Mm. And I just was shocked by this. So he basically, he, he, he condones masturbation so long as you don't use pornography with it. Okay. And I mean, that surprised me. So, and, but the kind of way he got out of it was this sort of mystery language. Well, who really knows, you know, the sin of Onan, <laughs> that's not, exactly, you know, and I mean, it was like, well, look, I mean, it just felt very, does that make sense? Yeah. So anyway. Well, you get, you get in the, the Romans passage, whenever St. Paul, and I think this happens a lot with St. Paul, a lot. I don't know how much a lot is, so don't ask me to name it. But when when St. Paul is uh, pressed up against the mystery, um, he doesn't just say, oh, who knows? He goes into like praise language. Yeah. He just begins to praise God for the depths and the riches and the wisdom that is the knowledge of God and how unsearchable it is. And so he stops short of going further and then teaches us when we get to the point where we are up against what is hidden versus what has been revealed, we don't say, oh, what does it matter? We begin to praise him. Yeah. And you don't praise him by masturbating. Right. I mean, I'm just, um, I'm not, I, I mean, it's just, let's just be just honest. I mean, this not, it, you know, <laughs> you don't, you don't praise him by denying, right. Imagining yeah. a world where evolution is a divine mercy, tooth and claw and the weakest is being destroyed. And right. I mean, that's not a, yeah, those aren't, those aren't praise. Right. And I, I think this happens in our, maybe it's all ages, but it seems ex- especially prevalent in our age because of the spirit of the age that if something doesn't make sense we just reject it and leave it off and then do what we want instead of stopping short and saying well uh the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of god and start praising god for how how rich he is instead of saying ah well i don't get that so i'm just not going to deal with it instead he submits himself he submits himself he submits himself to whatever it is and then just begins to praise god that's what i need to start doing with this crux theologram yeah that that's the next and instead of just saying set a timer we're done talking about it we need to actually yeah we need to actually praise god for being so much better than us at being god right (laughs) exactly (laughs) <laughs> that it's like, wow, uh, this is really hard. I can't understand this. And, 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 and yet this all is mercy and thank God he's doing it. Not me. And right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's it's out of my yeah, control that, and that's exactly where it should be. Control. And thanks be to and God. Wonderful. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's the next, that's right. That's a good insight. I like that. I so that's absolutely a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So in, in what sense is is that not happening with Nicodemus? He's trying to pin things down. And how is Jesus trying to draw him into praise instead of just trying to figure it all out and put everything in its peg hole? Yeah. I, I mean, maybe, maybe Nicodemus does go into praise, you know, it's not recorded how he responds, but he Mm -hmm. is, you know, he's one of the only, you know, the few people that actually responds in a faithful manner at the death of Jesus. 
buying yeah. the spices, you know, and um, not being ashamed of Jesus. And so maybe that is his so praise. Maybe that is his praise. Yeah. Takes a few years, but he gets there. Maybe he gets so, there right that night. Wait so a minute. Is isn't he named an- one other time? Isn't he named one other time at the, um, when they're debating? I can't remember now. When they're yeah, debating in the seven fifty. Oh yeah, and he doesn't he say something about we should wait and see or something, which kind of indicates he's not quite on board yet. Remember, yeah, there it is, seven fifty. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, "Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing?" They answered and said to him, "Are you also from Galilee?" So, I mean, he does. It's not the greatest defense of Jesus that's ever been done in the history of the world, but no, at least he seems like on the right path. Well, he's, you know, he's trying to uh, say, look, uh, our law doesn't allow us to condemn without giving a hearing. And they reply, oh, you must be one of them. Then, I know. Because look, no prophet arises from Galilee. Right. But then, but then we don't, but then we don't, he doesn't do any more as far as we know. As far as we know, no. So. But maybe that's what tipped it. Seems like. That's what tipped it. What against? Oh, oh, for him. For oh, him. yeah. He's like yeah. Oh, these guys are bloodthirsty. These guys are bad. Yeah, it's just like that. Maybe we're the baddies. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a skull on our cap. <laughs> Do you know that skit? I can't remember. I there's that British. It's a great skit. You could find. Uh, there's these two SS troops. There. This is a British comedy show. So there's these two. Uh, SS troops in World War II, and they're in this foxhole. And the one says to the other one, did you ever wonder maybe we're the baddies? And the, guy, and the other guy's like, what? No, we're the good guys. He's like, there's a skull on our cap. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Anyway, maybe we're the baddies. So, oh. <laughs> so um, I'll have to go put that in the show notes yeah. so that people can, uh, can find it. So, so should we then when we're preaching, lead them into a praise. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely, I've done that, maybe not on this Sunday, but I do think there's times to do that. Um, You know, like Luther does that in, I mean, a similar thing in his explanation to the first petition where he breaks into prayer, right? In the middle of the explanation to your heavenly father, right? Um, Yes. I think that can be effective as a rhetorical device and as an example, um, I, you know, it, it certainly should be done in moderation, um, yeah. not every week and, you know, and, and not, you know, not half the sermon, but, but I do think that there, that that's an appropriate way. And certainly it could be, you know, done as a conclusion too. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're going to do that though, I, I would want you to do it in your own words, so I think I would be I would be annoyed as the hearer if you just used, you know, a hymn that somebody else wrote or even a psalm. I think okay. if you're going to if you're going to slip into that, you know, a kind of yeah, then then write your own. You know, yeah. it can be a riff on on the Romans 11 or on Psalm 98 or on something else, but I I think you should you should give in that context, I think it's appropriate and right and helpful for you to give an individualized, personal expression of praise. I never thought those words would come out of my mouth, but they just did. I, I think in a, because a sermon is different, because a sermon is, right, 
Um, there is this reality that that a sermon is explication of scripture uh, that is that is built in and dependent upon the preacher's own personality and experience, and it's not eternal in the same way that the ordinaries are, right? There is a contemporariness and an application and a context for preaching that is that is unique in the liturgy. Yeah. I guess what I was thinking here is so how how would how would you structure a sermon that is teaching them how to praise when they come up against things that are difficult to understand? So that that is our first response. I don't think it, I don't think it is our I don't think it should be our first response. Okay. I don't, I don't think our, yeah, I mean I yeah, I think our, our first response is to do some work and, and to do the mental, you know, I think we're required, you know, for, take the crux theologram again, right? As the modern example, or I mean, because the, since the Trinity doesn't bother us, whatever it is that bothers us, right? Why do, why do some people go to hell and when they never had a chance, they never heard the word Socrates, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think our first response is to actually do some wrestling and struggling and to bring the revealed will of God to bear. Well, here's what we know, right? Here's, mm-hmm. here's the statements we have to say because this is what the Bible says and what we know is true. And then are those, are those statements logically consistent with one another? Like they don't seem to be in this case or, you know, and then how do we, you know, do some work thinking about this kind of even though some of it's philosophical and some of it's difficult. And then, you know, then I think is the second response when we go, okay, this is as far as we can go. And we're in danger now of placing ourselves into the place of judging God. And so when we feel that temptation and we recognize it, then instead we do the sort of opposite and we praise God. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that fair? No, you can't that, start I think that's, with yeah. no, you can't, you can't. Uh, and, I didn't mean to indicate that was that that was the case, but I can see that I did by my poor wording. Of course, yeah, we need to we need to do due diligence, right? Yeah, yeah. Pra- so. Praise praise comes from knowledge. Okay, right? I mean, all of the praise of the in the Bible, like the Psalms and stuff. I mean, there's it's actual content. It's not just. And not that you were saying this, but I mean, right, in our context, you know, in American evangelicalism, the dominant form of Christianity um, amongst us in our, in our world, right, it mm-hmm. praises an ecstatic form of speech, of self-expression, of euphoria, right. that is, is basically, it's not really set very explicitly uh, certainly, with the words it's used, it uses it isn't said explicitly in the history of Israel, or yeah. in the, or in the person of Jesus Christ. It's it's a, you know, kind of a mm-hmm. love love song to Jesus sort of thing, and it's not. It's really kind of most of it is only one or two steps removed from kind of speaking in tongues, which yeah. is you know the kind of most selfish, the most selfish kind of form of ecstatic speech that is just about giving over pure emotion, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's really, I don't think what, what we, what they call speaking in tongues, which that ecstatic speech that they claim is given by the spirit. I don't think what they, I don't think that ever actually happens in the Bible. 
I don't think that's what was going on in Corinth. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, that's a whole other debate. Yeah. So do you ever, for this Sunday, just preach on the Athanasian Creed? Yeah, I've done that. And I think that can be, so I, I, I think that can be helpful. I, my people like the, they, it's funny, I, maybe because we only do it once a year, but they enjoy the Athanasian Creed. It's like, uh, I don't know why. I don't know if they think they think they're tough. I don't know. It's like a it's like a feat of strength, you know, to confess the <laughs> Athanasian Creed. But I like to. I think it is very useful to 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 spend some time talking about it and to notice that the Athanasian Creed is very similar to the other two. You know, the actual creeds, the Nicene and the Apostles, in that really there's there's really only two things being confessed, and mm-hmm. it's more explicit, obviously, in the Athanasian Creed. The first is the tri- the character of the Trinity, and then the second, which is most of the time, is actually on the two natures of Christ. And this is the Catholic faith. I mean, this is really the essence of the Catholic faith, is to worship the true God. And the true God is three persons, the second of whom became a man. And mm-hmm. that's, a, I think, a very important diagnostic or uh, analysis that what what is the creed really confessing? I mean, there I, I know there's some more to it than that, but that's the uh, that's those are the two main points, and it's it's not one point, it's two, I think. Mm-hmm. So walking them through that, I think, is can be very can be very useful. And of course, you know, you you get a chance then to talk about the whole problem with uh, how does that go in the Athan? There's something about works in the Athanasian Creed. Why can't I think of that? Yes. How that what, what does it say now? I can't remember. I can't believe I forgot. I don't have it right um, in front of me. <laughs> whoever has done well, uh, who, who does good, inherits internal life. But whoever does evil, it's something like that, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just opening it up. I mean, it, and that is troubling to our people. Well, whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And then, so that worries people quite a bit. Yeah, all those, the last, it's the closing. All those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. So that that those two sentences, right, the whole who have done good, that bothers the Lutherans. And then then also this whole Catholic thing. Mm-hmm. I, I like to uh, suggest for the word Catholic, it's a bit loose, but instead of saying according to the whole, uh, I like to say authentic. <laughs> what we mean, what the word Catholic means is what is authentic, what is according to the whole. What uh, this is, in other words, the actual faith. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so you know, there, there's some there's some use there. There's there's definitely opportunities to teach there, or and there's, I mean, there's opportunities for confusion amongst the people with the creed and some discomfort. Yeah. So, so what are you going to focus on this year? Yeah, I don't know. I've got, I mean, obviously you could, baptism, you could preach on baptism, you could preach on the Trinity, you could use the creed for that. You could preach on faith, obviously, because, Mm -hmm. and the Spirit's role in faith, kind of a setup for Pentecost the next Sunday. But that whole wind thing, you know, and the breathing into Adam, and that's a beautiful section. That allegory of the bronze serpent, I mean, that's pretty powerful as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you ever preached on the Romans passage? No, I don't think I have. I mean, I've cited it. Um, it's, it's. I mean, it's a passage I cite frequently, actually, but I've never just 
tried to, it, it would be hard to preach on for me because it is just praise. Yeah. Right. There, well, I mean, I mean, I know I'm probably going to expose my weaknesses here, but I mean, what, what really doctrine is in it? Is there any, I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's after he's coming out of the discussion of election. And so, he quotes Job, you know, which is interesting too. I mean, that, um, who is first uh, given to him that shall be repaid to him. I mean, so you could, I take it back. That, okay, you could definitely preach on this. The first part, not so much. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. I mean, there's, I don't know. Okay, we get it. God's big, we're small. But that, but then, um, yeah, the, you could take it to the context of, right, the ele- election is driving the praise. You could, rather than preaching on exactly what the praise is, you could do like you were saying and talk about praise as a response to the mysteries and, and the hidden will of God. And that mm-hmm. would play nice with the whole Job thing. Yeah. Right? You could go to the, the Lord, the, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Right? Yeah. How do we say that? Um, well, I mean, so, and just think of all the mysteries before us, the mystery of the incarnate yeah. nation of this nativity. Um, oh, I mean, all the stuff that is uh, put forward in the litany. Yeah. Those are all the, yeah. the mysteries. and. I mean, that seems to me, yeah, I mean, that is preaching on the Romans text, but it's not exactly explicating the words of the Romans text. It's more explaining the function of that text, mm-hmm. which that's legit. I'm not, I'm not. It's just not what I. It's not what I usually jump to. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a it's a great idea. Maybe I will do that. I mean, because it is pretty. It is an interesting insight. I've never noticed that or thought about about that. So. I mean, in terms of the uses of Holy Scripture, you have the exhortation that you could use to make sure that you praise God for the things that you do not understand, but He has in His control. You have yeah. teaching that. He is beyond you, even though you have all this learning. Um, even the Apostle That's Paul. That's boring. I don't want to do that one. I don't want to do the teaching one. You don't. Ha- I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying those are avenues. Well, okay, they're avenues, but I mean, some avenues have 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 uh, more merit than others. I mean, I don't think people need to be. We don't need to spend a lot of time explaining to God to people that that they can't understand God. No. Do we? I don't think I, so. Okay. I don't know. I mean, don't you think sometimes- I like the exhortation. Okay. There you go. I like it. I think maybe I will do that. I do think it's an excellent insight, and it, it's uh, something I have never noticed, that Paul slips into praise in these particular contexts. Maybe I shouldn't say so. slips, but Yeah. Yeah, when he gets to the end of what's been revealed, and he begins to praise. Yeah, even if what is revealed is not everything we would like to know. Yeah. Yeah, good. All right. Uh, Any final thoughts? (laughs) Nope, I think that'll be it. Okay. All right. All right, thanks, Mason. We'll uh, catch up with you next week. Okay. Okay.